Well, good morning. Wow. What a blessing to see so many young people out at this hour in the morning. Isn't this great? Praise the Lord. Almost totally full. Unbelievable. It's good to see all of you. Did you sleep well last night? Yeah, a little warm? <laughs> That's okay, though. Not a problem. As long as we have this Christian fellowship and warmth, uh, you know, we can put up with a few inconveniences here and there, can't we? Because compared to what's coming, these inconveniences are nothing. Before we enter our study this uh, morning, we want to ask for the Lord's presence and his blessing. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege of being in this beautiful place in the mountains. We thank you, Father, for the fresh air. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for Christian fellowship. But above all, we thank you for your holy word. Father, how terrible it would be to be in this world without any guidance, direct guidance from you. But we thank you that you have given us a compass in your word. And as we open that word this morning, we ask for the presence of your spirit. For we are fully aware that the Holy Spirit gave the Bible. And without the aid of the Holy Spirit, we could never understand what he gave. So be with us and instruct us and guide us. We thank you, Father, for hearing and answering our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two things that go together like a hand and a glove. And that is the Hebrew sanctuary and the book of Revelation. The reason why the Seventh-day Adventist church, and I don't say this arrogantly, but I do say it truthfully, the reason why the Seventh-day Adventist church is the only church in the world that understands the book of Revelation is because it's the only church in the world that understands the Hebrew sanctuary. You see, the book of Revelation follows the exact sequence of the Hebrew sanctuary from beginning to end. And in our devotional period this morning, I would like to uh, go into the book of Revelation and follow the sequence of the book of Revelation and share with you how Revelation follows the exact sequence of ministration and of places of the Hebrew sanctuary. Now, I would like to review just a little bit the geography of the Hebrew sanctuary for those uh, who are not real well-versed in the Hebrew sanctuary. I'd like to just give a description and also a description of the daily and the yearly service. So most of this will be review for a lot of you, but I feel that it's important to do this. Uh, the Hebrew sanctuary had four key places. We usually think of three, but it had four. The first was the Hebrew encampment where the Israelites lived. You see, they were part of the sanctuary. They will build me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. Without them, the sanctuary would be useless because really they were the ones who needed the services of the sanctuary. So the first place, uh, key place of the sanctuary was the encampment. The second key place of the sanctuary was the court. And the central piece of furniture in the court, of course, was the altar of sacrifices. The sacrifice, the animals were sacrificed and they were placed upon the altar. And then, of course, you went into the tent proper and uh, the first apartment was called the holy place. And in the holy place, as you went in 
from the eastern side, you would look to your left, that is to the south, and you would see the seven-branch candlestick, which uh, was burning, the, the lights were burning all day, 24-7, all day and all night. Then as you look to your right, you saw the table of the showbread. There were uh, 12 um, breads, or tw I wouldn't say loaves, but you had uh, 12 cakes of bread. And uh, they were distributed into two piles, six and six. And I believe that's a special purpose for that. And then as you look straight forward, still in the holy place, you saw the altar of incense, where morning and evening, continually, the incense, the smoke of the incense was ascending and going over the curtain into the most holy place. Then, of course, the fourth key place of the sanctuary was the most holy place. And in the most holy place, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were uh, actually three things. You had Aaron's rod that budded, and you had the pot of manna. But in a central location, and what I especially want to dwell upon, were the Ten Commandments. The law of God were contained there. And of course, above the Ark was what was known as the mercy seat, and that's where the glory of God, the Shekinah, came down uh, to dwell in the Hebrew sanctuary. Now, also, the sanctuary, besides the geography of it, had uh, a daily and a yearly service. The daily service had to do with the court and with the holy place of the sanctuary. You see, uh, the sacrifices were offered morning and evening, besides other, uh, other sacrifices. But there was a morning and evening sacrifice, which means that upon the altar, the sacrifice was burning continually. Uh, in the holy place... The bread was to be there continually. Uh, the incense was to be going up continually. The seven uh, lamps of the candlestick were supposed to be lighted continually. In other words, what took place in the court and in the holy place was a continual thing. It was daily. It was the daily service of the sanctuary. Uh, the services of the most holy place were yearly. Uh, in other words, once a year, at the end of the year, you had the Day of Atonement and the, day, and the Feast of trumpet, trump, Trumpets that announced the Day of Atonement. And of course, the Day of Atonement was the great day of judgment when Israel was judged and they needed to afflict their souls uh, during the time that the a high priest was in the most holy place of the sanctuary. And so at the end of the year, once a year, you have the services of the most holy place of the sanctuary. Now, what I want to share this morning is the fact that the book of Revelation follows the exact order of the Hebrew sanctuary and reveals to us the different steps that Jesus takes as he uh, does his utmost to save us. Now, if you ask uh, most Christians why Jesus came to this earth, they'll say, well, he came to save me or he came to die on the cross. And that's true. Jesus came to save us, and Jesus came to die on the cross. But the Hebrew sanctuary is much, in, much more involved than just the sacrifice in the court. You have the services of the holy place, and you have the service of the most holy place of the sanctuary, representing different aspects of the work of Christ. Now, as we begin, I would just like to say that the different parts of the Hebrew sanctuary depict different functions of Jesus Christ in the plan of salvation. His work in the court represents primarily Jesus as sacrifice. His work in the holy place represents Jesus primarily as intercessor. 
His work in the most holy place represents primarily his work as judge. And there's one further function. Once the Hebrew sanctuary closes, the function of Jesus that is depicted is Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. So the Hebrew sanctuary depicts four functions of Jesus. Jesus as sacrifice, Jesus as intercessor, Jesus as judge, and Jesus as king. And I believe that the book of Revelation reveals all of these functions in the exact order of the Hebrew sanctuary. Now, I'm only going to share with you this morning the high points of the book of Revelation. I wish we had time to study the nitty-gritty, the, the, the little details in between each one of these high points, but obviously we don't have the time, and I trust that uh, many of you are taking notes or you're going to get the CD or the DVD, uh, if there is one, and uh, that you're going to take it home and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to check this out, I'm going to check Pastor Bohr out. And you study everything in between the high points that we're going to take a look at in our study this morning. Basically, I would like to begin with Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. There, uh, Revelation chapters 1 through 3, rather. Let's begin at Revelation chapter 1 and uh, verses uh, 5 and 6, and then we'll jump to uh, speak about the first three chapters generally. Revelation chapter 1. And let's read verses 5 and 6. It says here, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, that's his resurrection, right? And the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now notice this, to him who loved us, what tense is that verb? It's past. Loved us, and how did he show his love? And washed us, what tense is the verb? Past. And washed us from our sins in his own blood. What uh, piece of furniture in the sanctuary is this verse referring to? It's referring to his what? To his sacrifice. So where are we in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5? It's reminiscing upon his work at the altar of sacrifice. On the cross he died, he shed his blood to save his people from their sins. But now we go to the rest of Revelation 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. And you have Jesus there walking among the seven candlesticks. If you go with me to chapter 1 and verse 13, actually let's read verse 12 for the context. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Where would those be? In the holy place, obviously. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, this is the same one who loved us, passed and washed us in his blood, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So where is Jesus in the series of the churches? He's walking among the seven what? The seven candlesticks. Now, the seven candlesticks represent the seven churches. And the seven churches, the reason why the number seven is used, is because they represent the history of the church from apostolic times till the end of the age. The totality or the completeness of the history of the church. And the picture that's being given is that Jesus, in the history of the Christian church, is walking among the seven candlesticks, and what is he doing? If you read Leviticus 24, verses 1 to 4, we're told that the high priest had to do two things with regards to the candlestick. First of all, he had to trim the lamps to make sure that they kept burning, and he had to make sure that the lamps continually had enough oil to continue burning. 
Now, what is Jesus, the high priest, doing among the seven candlesticks or in the history of the Christian church? Remember, the number seven represents the totality of the history of the Christian church. Jesus is making sure that the light of the church does not what? That the light of the church does not go out. That there's an abundance of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church so that the church will continue to give its light. Let me ask you, were there some periods where the light flickered and it looked like it was going to go out? Absolutely. We know about the dark ages. Why do you suppose they're called the dark ages? Because the candlestick was dim. And yet the comforting aspect is that the light never went out because God was never left without witness. He had the Waldenses and he had the Albigenses in hand. All these individuals who, under very difficult circumstances, shared the light of Jesus Christ. And so we find, after it, we're told that Jesus loved us and washed us in his blood, that's, a work, that's the work on the altar of sacrifice, then we see Jesus walking among the seven candlesticks. He's pouring out his spirit so that his church can give light. And then we move to the series of the seals. Now, I believe, on the basis of what I've studied, that uh, the seals actually are taking place at the table of the showbread. And let me explain the reason, some of the reasons why. Number one, we're told that the throne in the series of the seals, in front of the throne, are the seven candlesticks. Now, if you look at the geography of the Hebrew sanctuary you'll notice that that which was directly before the seven candlesticks was what? Was the table of showbread, because the table of showbread was in the north and the seven candlesticks were in the south. And Revelation 4 and 5, which is the introductory vision to the seals, locates that throne and says the throne is in front of the seven candlesticks. Furthermore, it's interesting that the table of the showbread was the only piece of furniture in the, in the sanctuary that had two crowns around it. Now, who uses crowns? Kings use crowns. Furthermore, on the table of the showbread, there were 12 uh, cakes of bread, but they were distributed into two stacks. Now, that's interesting. You know, if you've been to the Middle East, you could stack up 12 uh, cakes of bread, one on top of another. But purposely, they were placed six and six. And you say, what is the reason? Well, let's read Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21 to notice where Jesus went when he ascended to heaven. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and what? And sat with my father on his throne. So how many were sitting on the throne when Jesus ascended to heaven? Two. Did Jesus go as king, king of the kingdom of grace? Most certainly, yes. Are both the Father and the Son a source of bread for God's people? Amen. Absolutely. You notice, for example, in John chapter 6, uh, Jesus says, My Father sent the bread from heaven. But then he says, I am that bread. So in other words, the Father and the Son are both instrumental in feeding the people of God. And what does the bread represent? The bread represents the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Furthermore, and this is very interesting, under the third seal, you have a tremendous scarcity of wheat and barley. Now, what was wheat and barley used for? It was used to make bread. That's right. And 
wheat and barley under the period of the third seal, which we believe is the time of Constantine when erroneous doctrines entered the church. The bread of God or the word of God was what? It was scarce. And that's the reason why under the third seal you have uh, wheat and barley being very expensive because there's a scarcity of that which is necessary to make the word of God. In other words, to make the bread of God. And so in the series of the seals, Jesus is located at the table of the showbread and is feeding his people. Now, question, were there periods during the history of the Christian church where the bread was very, very scarce? Absolutely. Where the people of God were practically at the point of starvation? Absolutely. During the same period we know as the Dark Ages, what was done with the Bible? It was kept in Latin. It was forbidden for people to read the Bible. Therefore, the bread of God was scarce. You know, under another symbol in Revelation chapter 11, you have the two witnesses, and, and those represent the Old and New Testament, and they're witnessing in sackcloth. In other words, they can't give their full light because of this terrible period of apostasy. And so in the, period, in the series of the seals, the emphasis is upon Jesus giving bread to his people. Sometimes the bread is scarce, but never is the bread totally missing. Just like you have a dark period, dark periods in the history of the Christian church, but never did the light totally and completely disappear. So Jesus is feeding his church, and Jesus is giving the Holy Spirit so his church can give light. And then we come to the series of the trumpets. Go with me to Revelation chapter 8 and let's see where Jesus is during the trumpets. Revelation chapter 8 and notice verse 3. It says here, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. Which altar is this? There was the altar of sacrifice. Is this the altar of sacrifice in the court? No. It says he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So where is Jesus at the beginning of the series of the trumpets? Jesus is found in at the altar of incense or the golden altar. So what has happened in the first half of Revelation? Jesus has moved from the court where he loved us and washed us in his blood to walk among the seven candlesticks to make sure that the church receives a supply of the Holy Spirit. Then he has moved in the series of the seals to the table of the showbread to make sure that there's bread to feed his people from the Father and from the Son. And then he's moved from the, to, uh, to uh, the altar of incense to receive the prayers of his saints. Amen. By the way, the holy place has what I call the triangle of sanctification. If you want to live a sanctified life, the secret is found in the holy place of the sanctuary. You say, what do you mean? Well, just think about it. The candlestick receives oil and imparts light. That represents the church giving witness to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it represents witnessing, imparting the light of Jesus. See, Jesus is the sun and we are moons. Sometimes we think we're suns. But we're only moons. You know, when we go out at night and we see the moon, beautiful full moon, we say, oh, the moon is so beautiful tonight. But listen, the moon would be nothing if it did not receive light from the sun. 
So we would be nothing if we did not receive light from Jesus. So, so Jesus imparts the Holy Spirit to the church so that the church can witness, can give light and testimony to him. Now, what about the bread? Well, the bread represents the word of God. It represents the fact that we should be feeding upon the word of God so that we can grow spiritually. What does the altar of incense represent? It represents prayers because Jesus mixes or blends his merits with our prayers and they go before the Father and they're acceptable before God. And so you have witnessing, Bible study, and prayer as the three secrets for a sanctified life. And by the way, they have to be practiced in a balanced manner. Ellen White says that he who does nothing but pray will eventually cease to pray. Did you know that? Some, you know, some people emphasize one point, other people emphasize another point. The fact is that we have to balance all three of these in order to have a balanced, sanctified life. Now, we've gone from the court to the holy place, and now we want to notice where Revelation sends us next. Go with me to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. It says there, then the temple of God, by the way, this word temple, naos, uh, refers to a specific portion of the Hebrew sanctuary, refers to the most holy place. It says, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And what was seen? And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So where is Jesus in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19? He's in the most holy place because the Ark of the Covenant was found where? In the most holy place. And this is happening in heaven. Now let me ask you, what good would it be for Jesus to go into the most holy place to begin the work of judgment if nobody on earth knew about it? That would kind of defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? And so I want you to notice in Revelation chapter 14 that there is an earthly announcement of this heavenly event. Revelation chapter 14, and notice verse 6. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment will come. Oh, good, good. You're sharp. You're sharp. It's early, but you're sharp. Says the hour of his judgment, what? Is come or has come. Is this an earthly announcement of the heavenly event? Most certainly. And then it continues saying in verse uh, 7 and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. Do you know that very frequently in the Bible, uh, creation is connected with judgment? And do you know the reason why? The reason why is because we are all creatures and we are accountable to the Creator. So judgment and creation are very frequently linked. That's the reason why you have creation here. It says, worship your Creator because now we are in the hour of the judgment. So in Revelation 11 and verse 19, the most holy place opens, the Ark of the Covenant is seen, and now God's people are going to be judged by the perfect law of liberty. And that is going to be announced on earth. And by the way, it is being announced since 1844 that we are now in the hour of the what? Of the judgment, beginning with the dead 
and then eventually ending with the living, which we'll talk, I'm sure, a lot about uh, during the course of this weekend. Now, what happens after the work in the most holy place is concluded? The work in the most holy place is finished. The fact is that the sanctuary or the temple closes and nobody can go in anymore. No, go with me to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 5. Do you see how this is following the order of the Hebrew sanctuary? You know, the reason why, the reason why most churches cannot understand the message of Revelation is because they don't have the foggiest idea that the book of Revelation is simply following Jesus. You know? And if you're in the wrong apartment, you're deceived. The fact is that present truth is preaching what the message of where Jesus is now. Some people say, preach the cross. Yes, preach the cross within the context of what Jesus is doing now. Amen. Don't just preach the cross. Don't go back to the court. In fact, Ellen White had a vision. It's found in early writings, pages 54 to 56, where, where she says that uh, when Jesus entered the most holy place, there was a group that entered with Jesus into the most holy place. But she says that many of those that were in the holy place lost sight of Jesus and they stayed kneeling before the throne in the holy place. Notice she says that there was a throne in the holy place. And she says that Satan seemed to take the place of Jesus next to the throne. And those Christians there would pray, give us your spirit. And Satan would blow upon them an evil influence. And they had this great revival, this counterfeit revival with signs and miracles and wonders. And they thought it was the power of God while it was the power of another spirit. That's what's happened since 1844 with the churches. And that's what's happening within the Seventh-day Adventist church today. Because many don't want to go into the most holy place. In fact, they criticize the most holy place message. They criticize the messenger of the Lord. They don't want to believe that we're in the judgment. They want to believe that Jesus went directly into the most holy place when he went to heaven. And therefore, they're not preaching present truth. And it's present truth, according to Ellen White, what the church needs today. The devil knows that the time is coming when we're not going to be able to enter the most holy place. And by the way, now is not a time to celebrate. Now is a time to afflict the soul. Because on the Day of Atonement, people weren't outside having an upbeat worship service. People were afflicting their souls while Jesus was cleansing the sanctuary. Inside, they were cleansing their lives outside. Because Jesus was not going to clean anything in there that had not been cleaned here. Now let's go to Revelation 15 and verse 5. After these things I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. You know, when it says that, what is the temple of the tabernacle? The tabernacle is the tent. The temple of the tabernacle, the naos of the tabernacle, is the most holy place. So it says, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Notice once again the most holy place is open, but this time it's open not so that people can go in, but so that the seven angels with the seven plagues can come out. In other words, nobody can go in anymore. Notice verse uh, 6. Actually, verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with what? With smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were com was completed. 
In other words, the time is coming when the most holy place is going to close and we are going to be without an intercessor. Have you read in the writings of Ellen White where she says that God's people will have to live without a mediator? You know, and, and we use that to scare people into obeying the Lord. You're going to have to live during that period all by yourself without a mediator. Listen, we will live without a mediator, but we will not live without a protector. He will be with us. You know, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you, even unto the close of probation. (laughs) It's not what he said. He He said, I am with you, even unto the end of the world, or unto the end of the age. Jesus is with with his people all through the time of trouble. But we cannot take the sins to the most holy place because the most holy place has been cleansed and hopefully our lives have been cleansed as well. Doing a parallel work with the work that Jesus has done in the most holy place. So Revelation 15 verses 5 through 8 speaks about Jesus finishing his work in the most holy place. No one can enter there by faith anymore to sympathize or participate in the work that Jesus is performing there. And then from Revelation chapter 16 to chapter 18, you have the outpouring of the seven plagues. By by the way, do you know why the seven plagues are poured out? Where does that idea come from, that from the ark come plagues? Yeah, but there's a story in the Old Testament. Uh, You remember the story of the Philistines? You know, uncircumcised hands took the ark, and to every city where they took it, what happened? The Bible says that they got hemorrhoids. In other words, what what did the ark do? The ark poured out upon them what? Plagues to the point where nobody wanted it anymore. They kept on passing it from... No, no, it's your turn now. They kept on passing it from city to city. Till finally they said to Israel, come get this thing. All it does is send plagues because it had been handled by uncircumcised hands. So from Revelation 16 through 18, you have the seven last plagues. And then I want you to notice that in Revelation chapter 19, you have the coming of Jesus. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. And I want you to notice how he's coming. Has he already taken his kingdom when he comes in Revelation 19? Has he taken his kingdom? Almost certainly yes. Notice Revelation 19, 11. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That is not his own blood. You know, this is an amazing portrayal of Jesus coming to trample the winepress of the oppressors of God's people. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Wow. Now let's go down to verse 16. And and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, what? King of kings and Lord of lords. Is he coming now after he's finished his work in the most holy place when the plagues have been poured out? Is he coming now in his functions as king of kings and Lord of lords? Has he established what his kingdom is in the judgment? Absolutely. So he comes as king of kings and Lord of lords. But there's a little ceremony of the sanctuary. Actually, it's a big ceremony of the sanctuary that took place at the very end of the Day of Atonement. Do you know what uh, ceremony that was? It was called the scapegoat ceremony. Hmm. 
By the way, I don't have time to, to show you this, but Revelation 19 is really in reverse order. Verses 1 through 10 actually take place after verses 11 to 21. And Revelation does this all the time. It reverses the order. You know, Revelation 14 does the same thing. Revelation 7 does the same thing. Uh, so Revelation 19 is not in chronological order. Basically, what Revelation 19 does, in verses 1 through 10, it shows you God's people victorious in heaven. They're clothed in white robes. Uh, they're coming to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then John is going to say, now, how in the world did they get there to heaven? So he says, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell you how they got there. Jesus came as King of kings and Lord of lords and picked them up. Are you with me? It's another mistake that the churches make, uh, the churches out there. They try to study Revelation in chronological order. If you don't know the structure of Revelation, you're never going to be able to make sense out of the message of Revelation. It's going to be a great big hodgepodge. I'm serious. You know, we really need to sit down and we need to study Revelation. I'm not talking about reading Revelation. We need to sit down. We need to be giants in the Word of God. I mean, you're young people. You have all your mental energy there. Some of us, you know, we still have some mental energy. But but not as much as you do. I mean, you catch on to things just like that so quickly. The devil wants to take your energy from you. He wants you to use your energy in bad things. Why, why are you going to give him what he wants? Why not sit down instead of watching televisions, instead of uh, spending time and listening to this worldly music that doesn't help us at all, being involved in worldly entertainment, why not take that time and edify our character upon the Word of God? It's doing an intense, profound study of the Word of God. Now, the scapegoat ceremony. Interesting. The last thing that was done in the Hebrew sanctuary. Where in Revelation do you find the scapegoat ceremony? Revelation 20. And verse 1. By the way, do you know where the sins were placed on the head of the scapegoat? They were placed at the entrance to the tent in the court. In other words, the high priest came out to the court, the door that led into the tent. There he placed the sins on the head of the scapegoat. Let me ask you, where is the devil going to be when, uh, during the millennium when God's people are in heaven? He's going to be on earth. In Leviticus 16, it says that there were two characteristics about the place that the scapegoat went. Number one, it was the desert. And number two, it was an uninhabited land. It says specifically. Let me ask you this. Is the devil going to be sent out to a desolate wilderness? He most certainly is. Jeremiah says, I looked upon the earth and it was without form and void. And I looked at the heavens and they had no light. That is the condition of the earth before God proceeded to create in the seven days of creation. So this world is going to be a desolate wilderness. Is it going to be without inhabitants? Yes, because all of the wicked will be what? They'll be dead. And the devil and his angels will be the only ones left here on planet earth. Now notice this ceremony in Revelation 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil of Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Is this a scapegoat ceremony? It most certainly is. This is happening on earth. By the way, when it says here the bottomless pit, that's the Greek word abyssos, which uh, really uh, bottomless pit is not the best translation. It's the abyss. It's the same word in Greek that's used in Genesis where it speaks about the deep. Before God 
ordered this world and filled this world. It uses the word deep. And uh, for those of you who know a little bit about Bible versions, the Septuagint uh, version, which is the translation of the Hebrew uh, Old Testament into Greek, whenever the word tehom, which is the word deep in Genesis, is used, uh, it translates it abyssos. So we know there's a direct, direct relationship between the word uh, tehom and the word abyssos. They mean basically the same thing. Verse 3, And he cast him into the bottomless pit, that is, into the abyssos, the world without form and void, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And then, of course, Revelation speaks eventually about the destruction of Satan and then the creation of new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and God's people will dwell with the Lord forever. So does Revelation have all of the steps of the Hebrew sanctuary one by one in their proper order? Absolutely. They reveal the steps that Jesus takes to save us. Now I'd like to um, bring this to an end by going to Revelation chapter, uh, not Revelation, John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And I want to uh, reflect a few minutes upon verses 1 to 3. John chapter 14 and verses 1 to 3. Here, the beloved disciple says, let not your heart be troubled. Why would he say that? Because in the previous chapter, Jesus has told the disciples, I'm leaving. And Peter says, we want to go too. Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't follow me, but you're going to follow me later. And Peter says, I don't want to go later, I want to go now. (laughs) And Jesus knew that after he said that, the disciples were deeply troubled. We speak about troubled waters. By the way, it's the very word that's used at the pool Bethesda, you know, when an angel supposedly came and and, uh, moved the waters and the first person to jump in got healed. That was the idea. Uh, Where it speaks about the angel coming and moving the waters, that's the same word as here, troubled. So their hearts are troubled. So Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now I want you to notice this next next part. It says, in my Father's house there will be many mansions. You know, we have this idea that Jesus went to heaven to build mansions. He's been doing heavenly contracting for 2,000 years. (laughs) Believe me, young people, Jesus does not need 2,000 years to build mansions for us. Now, does he have mansions for us? Yes. No doubt whatsoever. They're beautiful mansions. But when Jesus spoke, they were already there. Because he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now notice this. I go to prepare a place for you. I want to dwell on that for, for a few moments. Jesus went to heaven to do what? To prepare a place for us. So what has he been doing for the last 2,000 years? Is the emphasis that he's been building houses and he's been planting vineyards and he's been fixing up the place for us? Absolutely not. How does Jesus prepare a place for us in heaven? 
Hebrews and Revelation explains that he prepares a place for us by the work that he performs in the sanctuary. In other words, the preparation of the place is his work in the holy place and in the most holy place and when he comes out of the most holy place to bless his people. So he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And now notice verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what will he do when he's prepared the place? I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Is there a work that Jesus has to perform before he can come back again? Absolutely. It says, I go to what? I go to prepare a place for you. That's what Jesus is doing now. His work in the sanctuary is the work of preparation. Read Hebrews. Study the passages that we've noticed in the book of Revelation. You'll find that it describes in minute detail the work that Jesus is performing to prepare the place up there. Now, here's the amazing thing. While Jesus is preparing the place up there, his people should be preparing down here. But for that, we have to follow Jesus in each step of his ministration to understand what he's doing and what we need to do in parallel fashion to what he's doing there. Now, here's the amazing thing. I want to give you some homework. Last night, your homework was to study the great controversy and assimilate and allow the message of the great controversy to to transform and to change your life. I have now another uh, bit of homework for you. Do you know in John, in Revelation, we speak about what, uh, what Jesus does in heaven. Hebrews speaks about the work that Jesus does in heaven. But do you know where the Bible speaks about the parallel work that we're supposed to be doing on earth? John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Those chapters describe how the Holy Spirit on earth works with the people and prepares the people while Jesus is in heaven preparing the place. In other words, while Jesus is in heaven preparing the place, his people on earth are preparing for the place. And John 14, 15, 16, and 17 describes in minute detail what God's people are supposed to be doing. And I'll specify a little bit better the the homework that you need to do. Try and find there... In John 14 through 17, the central themes of the work of Jesus in the holy and the most holy place. You'll be amazed at the number of times during those chapters that it speaks about the need to study the word of God, the need to pray, the need to witness even in the most difficult times, and the number of times that Jesus speaks about the fact that there's going to be a judgment. But the perspective in Revelation and in Hebrews is upon the work that Jesus performs in heaven. The emphasis in John 14 through 17 is what God's people should be doing on earth as Jesus is preparing the place in heaven. You see, there's a special work of preparation that needs to take place. Let me put it this way. If Jesus came today and took us to heaven, many of us would be miserable Because the music would not fit our tastes. 
And don't you think that Jesus is going to change your tastes on the way to heaven? We would be miserable with the food that he has there. Almonds and pomegranates and grapes. Probably some mangoes, I hope. (laughs) And papayas. Some of that good tropical fruit. There's not going to be any death in no McDonald's. No. None of that food with preservatives and with uh, artificial colorings and all that stuff. None of that there. So if we don't get used to God's diet here, we would be miserable up there. And God's not going to take us there to be miserable. No movie theaters majoring in uh, illicit sex and violence and lying and cheating and stealing. None of that. Just the simple pleasures of life. So where do we learn to live that way? We learn to live that way here. And the fact is that John 14 through 17 explains how we learn to live here in preparation for up there. So while Jesus is preparing a place in heaven for us, we should be on earth preparing for that place. We should be following Jesus by faith from the court to the holy place, to the most holy place. Listen, folks, one of the mistakes we commit when we work with other Christians is we want to take them directly to the most holy place. Don't make that mistake of taking them to the most holy place first. The first angel's message begins with the everlasting gospel. And then it goes into into some of the heavier things. Fear God, give glory to Him. The hour of His judgment has come. See, when we deal with other people, we have to take take them through the whole process. See, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for you, but then what did the priest do? Took the blood into the next apartment. Jesus wants to feed his people with his word. He wants the church to impart his light. He wants to, uh, he, he wants to uh, uh, intercede for their sins. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And then we need to take him the additional step. You know, the Bible says that there's going to be a judgment. And on the day of judgment, Israel afflicted their souls. They, they, they were supposed to gain the victory over sin in their lives through the grace of Christ so that their sins could be blotted out. Repent and be converted that your sins may be what? May be blotted out. And then they'll have the most holy place experience with Jesus, which is where Jesus is now. That is present truth now. So if we are in the court or if we're in the holy place preaching that message today, we're only preaching part of the gospel. We're not preaching present truth. It might be truth. Ellen White says that there are many precious truths in the Bible. She says, but it is present truth which... God's people need at this particular time. And the present truth is the message that we find enshrined in the most holy place of the sanctuary. And so I challenge uh, us this morning to get spiritually in tune with Jesus. You know, it doesn't take place overnight. We have to learn to like uh, good things and we have to learn to despise bad things. You know, when I was in Wisconsin Academy many, many years ago, Tarzan novels were the the in thing. Well, that was a long time ago. That was the, the age of dinosaurs. But everybody read Tarzan novels. It was so, so exciting, you know, swinging through the trees, uh, fighting with lions and crocodiles and so on, you know. And my parents had taught me to read the Bible. They taught me to pray. 
for a while, I had a detour from the Lord because my mind was so enfeverished with all this ex- exciting stuff. When I went to read the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. How boring. I would several times start reading the Bible and I just could, you know, I'd read a few, uh, few chapters maybe and just quit. But it came to the point one day when I said, you know, I've really gone astray from the Lord. I need to get back to the roots. And I'm going to start reading the Bible. I'm going to start reading until I like it. And so I prayed to the Lord. I said, Lord, help me in this. And I started studying the Bible. And, and I can tell you it was a struggle, but I, I hung in there. Until finally, hey, hey, this is pretty good stuff. I started loving the Bible. I never thought about being a preacher until, until after I got out of high school. I was going to be a physical education teacher. But as a result of this experience, I, you know, I decided to, be, to, to accept the call that God had given me to become a minister. And now I just cannot figure out how people can sit down and watch those superficial movies with all this junk. You know, I can sit down and I can study Revelation and I can be one or two o'clock in the morning studying. I know I'm not supposed to do that, but <laughs> studying and researching. Say, wow, this is exciting. Sit down and start watching something on television. Five minutes later, I am asleep. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't believe me, ask, ask my wife or my kids. They, you know, they'll tell you the truth. It's all a matter of how we educate our mind. What we focus on, what we spend our time on. And Jesus wants us to prepare young people for heavenly society by loving godly things. And when we love godly things, the ungodly things, we, they will be insipid. They will not awaken any interest in us. You know, some people say, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And I say to them, you're so earthly minded, you're no heavenly good. Because the opposite side of the coin is true too. You know, our mind needs to be in heaven like Enoch. So that Jesus can say, listen, Enoch, you have no reason to be on earth anymore. What are you doing down there? Come up here. We'll continue walking on the street of gold. Forever and ever. I pray to God that that will be the experience. Do you want God to give you that experience this morning? You want to raise, you want to stand this morning if you want that experience in your life? Folks, if we have that experience in our life, let me tell you, we will have power to shake the world. The power of God. And that's what God wants from the youth today. To use their energies. And the devil diverts it. But God wants us to use our energies for the finishing of God's work. And I see exciting things happening in the Adventist church. And I'm glad that the Lord has given me life this period of history. People ask, uh, if you had one period in history in which to live, which would it be? Now, I say, this is the time. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the marvelous message that you have given us as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Father, at the same time, we realize that many times we have uh, taken a detour from uh, the message that you have given us to present to the world. And you've, uh, you've wanted us to come back to the straight and narrow, to, to plug in spiritually again. Lord, uh, we, we just kind of lethargically not live but exist. Father, I thank you for this wonderful group of young adults and young people. Father, I just ask that you will pour out your spirit upon this meeting this weekend that when we leave this place, we will be so inspired that no one will be able to detain us from opening our mouths and sharing the wonderful message about what Jesus is doing, that Jesus is coming soon. Father, give us victory over every sin and over every besetment. 
Lord, we want to be pure and clean without spot or wrinkle or any such thing when Jesus comes in the clouds. We thank you, Father, for having been with us and thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.